0: Good afternoon. It is good to be uh, here with you. I, I just told Kelsey that right before it started, I was sitting here in that chair and realized that um, the last time I sat in that seat and spoke on this stage was at my dad's memorial service. So I'm a little more emotional than I thought I would be to start. So um, let's, I'm Kristen Hartman, by the way, um, but let me just pray for for us before before we dig in. Gracious God, what What a privilege it is that we can come to you in prayer just just like Daniel did, to the same God. Uh, And we give you this time. We are so grateful for your word, for what you have for us in it, and for your presence in in our lives. It is is our joy to be your children. In your name, amen. Uh, I'm glad to be with you today. I haven't been here in the room for this series yet, but I've watched them online. So I'll tell you now, I will be somewhere between Zach's amazing slides and Darren's no slides. There will be some slides and they're not amazing, Um, but I love our text for today. Uh, Zach, when he sent me the description, he described it as a small break from the dense prophecy to see the heart of Daniel, and I think that's so true. I think it gives us a good look at God's heart, too. Um, It can be easy to think of Daniel in the terms that we've talked about it, The, the initial narrative and then the prophetic apocalyptic chapters, which can cause us to miss this, this portion of chapter 9 altogether, this prayer. And I think that's to our detriment, because this is a rich and illuminating prayer. But I personally need a lot of context. Those of you that know me a little better know that. Um, I need a lot of context. So it's hard for me to zoom in on a text in isolation without placing it in really the bigger narrative arc of God's story. I understand the way the Bible is laid out, why it's structured the way it is, but I also struggle with it a little bit, because the organization of the text— Can cause us to, well, can obscure the timeline of it. And it can obscure the relationship between books and people. And I want us to see how integrated those really are. So that's going to be part of what we do today. We're going to look at a lot of texts. We're going to read a lot of scripture because I think it gives us a fuller picture. When I was a student, and I was a student for a lot of years because I kept going back to school, uh, history classes were always frustrating to me. I loved them because I loved the stories but I had a hard time hanging the stories and all the dates we would have to memorize onto one timeline, They felt jumbled. I would feel like I have this little scene and then all these dates and I can't see kind of how they go together. And they would sort of be floating in space with minimal relationship between them. And so my mind works in a way that I need to settle those on a timeline that goes all the way through. So that's kind of what we're going to do today. We're going to try to place the prophet with the narrative, with the poem, with the date in history, if possible, and we're going to look at kind of all of that. So it'll be a little bit of a reprieve from the apocalyptic part of Daniel. It'll be more of a story, because that's what resonates with me, and so today it has to resonate with you. Um, So we're going to do that today. We're going to look at a lot of text, so we're going to step way back. We will not go all the way back to Genesis 1. We will start in Genesis 12. Um, Little little reprieve for you. So Genesis 12, we're going to start with Abram, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God is forming a people, a nation. There is land, physical geography, involved, and there are people involved. There's a promise. There is potential for blessing and for cursing. And those are tied to the collective activity of this people God is choosing through Abram. So we know the story. Abram becomes Abraham. Uh, The covenant's reaffirmed in Genesis 15 and Genesis 17. We learn that it's an everlasting covenant. And as the generations pass, Abraham's descendants indeed become a people. They are enslaved for hundreds of years in Egypt. And then God delivers them out of slavery. Through Moses, God gives his people the law. And we see further unfolding of God's promise to Abraham. In Deuteronomy, we hear so much more of the potential for blessing and for cursing. In Deuteronomy 28, um, we, we find kind of a really strange layout. There are 14 verses about blessings for obedience, and then there are 54 verses about curses for disobedience, which maybe should clue us in to what's coming. In Deuteronomy 29, the covenant is renewed, These words were given to God's people on the edge of the promised land. The land, the people, the promise. These are themes that just keep coming up. And years and years have passed, but God's plan is still unfolding. The end of Deuteronomy 30 is stunningly beautiful. It's a passage I love. We're going to start in verse 11, and then we'll uh, drop down. So, for this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you. Neither is it far off. Verse 15, see, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil, You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I, have set, sorry, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him. For he is your life and length of days that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give to them. It is explicit in these texts, in Genesis and Exodus and in Deuteronomy, that God's people are not bystanders, right? Their choices and actions directly affect their presence in the land and the blessings and curses God has outlined. They are active participants individually and collectively in this covenant. God will be faithful to do what he has promised. Will the people be faithful? We know the story. We, we know the Israelites struggle. They've struggled already. That's why they were wandering for 40 years before they even got to this point, standing on the cusp of the land they're about to enter. And then they struggle to take the land, to take all of the land, to rid the land of false gods, to separate themselves from the people who are already in the land. They struggle to heed the warnings and guidance of the judges God provides. They struggle to follow God alone, and they ask for a king. And for the next 400 years, we see them struggle under the leadership of kings and prophets. Uh, For the first three kings, Saul, David, and Solomon, there is a united kingdom. So that first 120 years or so of the monarchy, the land and people are unified. And then the kingdom splits into two. We have the northern kingdom of Israel, which cycles through just bad king after bad king, 19 of them, in about 200 years before it ceases to be. And we have the southern kingdom of Judah, which has a more mixed bag of good and evil kings right up until the Babylonians arrive. And as we know, Daniel is exiled while Judah continues to function as a a vassal of Babylon. But ultimately, the line of kings in Judah, it comes to an end with Zedekiah. Jerusalem is destroyed. The temple is destroyed. The people are scattered. Daniel is still in Babylon during all of this time. Throughout this time of God's people living in the land and having kings, they fail to uphold the covenant. And when I say they fail, I don't mean that they know what the covenant is and they are trying to follow God to the best of their ability and they fail because they just keep missing the mark. The bar is too high and they simply can't succeed. We know that no fallen human being can uphold the perfect uh, standard of God. That's not what happened. They weren't aiming at the target and failed to hit it. One commentator um, pointed out that this failure does not Imply that people had been seeking to live in accordance with God's expectations, but had not managed to achieve what they were aiming at, it implies that their failure was willful. They aren't even aiming at the target. Right? So this is an important distinction for me, because I look at the overarching story of God's people, and I get so frustrated, because it seems really clear to me what God said and what the people did not do. And I forget that this story is occurring over an immense stretch of time, and it's real time. It's way longer than our last eight months that have felt like an eternity to us. Right? This is taking hundreds and hundreds of years. And yes, the people heard directly from God through Moses and then the judges and then the prophets, but they're not hearing from God daily the way I always have kind of imagined it. Right? They they're having to hold on to promises over years and decades and centuries um, with very real enemies and very real threats. And the very real presence of an idolatry of a kind that maybe we can't even quite relate to, not only around them, but even among them. Um, So we know that even in the period of the kings that I just glossed over in seconds, we have stories like Josiah. He's a good king in Judah, the last good king, in fact. And there have been good kings before him, not a lot, but some. Um, But still, we have the story in 2 Kings 22 of the high priest finding the book of the law and it being read to the king. And we see the response of Josiah starting in verse 11 so second kings twenty two eleven. when the king heard the words of the book of the law he tore his clothes and the king commanded hilkiah the priest and Ahikam the son of shaphan and akbar the son of mihiah and shaphan and shaphan the secretary and asaiah the king's servant saying go inquire of the lord for me and for the people and for all judah concerning the words of this book that has been found For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. I forget what it means that the people have lost the book of the law. It's really significant. I forget what the actual people did not know and what they did know. If the king, a good king, who appears to be trying to do things the right way, he doesn't know what's in the book of the law. Maybe he doesn't even know it exists until it's found. Then what do the people know? I imagine it's a lot less. Remember, their failure is not aiming for the target and missing it. The target in some time period seems to actually be missing because of the willful choices of those who decided to sin and not aim at it in the first place. And there are generational ripple effects. Listen to the beginning of 2 Kings 23. Then the king, this is still Josiah, sent and all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem were gathered to him And the king went up to the house of the Lord and with him all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the prophets, all the people, both small and great. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book and all the people joined in the covenant. Verse 4, and the king commanded Hilkiah, the high priest, and the priests of the second order, and the keepers of the threshold, to bring out of the temple of the Lord all the vessels made for Baal, for Asherah, and for all the host of heaven. He burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of the Kidron, and carried their ashes to Bethel. So yes, the leadership and the people failed to keep the covenant with God. And here's one example of them returning to it, but more often than not, they were not keeping it. And this would not be the last time either. Even in this example, we see that Josiah understood the significance of their failure to keep it. He understood the generational consequences that because his own fathers had been unfaithful, the wrath of God would be faithful. And it could be his generation bearing the consequences of previous generations' unfaithfulness. Daniel enters the picture very shortly thereafter. Within a very few years of Josiah's death, and another evil king taking his place. Daniel is exiled as a youth to Babylon. And through our study of the book of Daniel, we know that much time has passed since, we, since he was exiled. Right? The line of kings in Judah has come to an end now. Jerusalem is destroyed. The temple is destroyed. Yet we also know Daniel continues to face Jerusalem when he prays. Daniel continues to serve this covenantal God, even as he's serving foreign kings. Right, and we come to the first words of our text for today in Daniel 9, starting in verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent Amid, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Daniel, at this point, is most likely in his 70s. The math indicates he's been in Babylon for around 60 years, maybe more. And Daniel is aware of Jeremiah's words. Jeremiah's ministry as a prophet was happening during Daniel's lifetime. This is one of those points of connection I've missed a lot of the time. In fact, the words that it appears Daniel is citing here, they come from Jeremiah 25. Uh, listen, oh no, that was the right one. Listen to the alignment, listen to our place on the timeline starting at the beginning of chapter 25. The word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, that was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, which Jeremiah the prophet spoke to all the people of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. For 23 years, from the 13th year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, to this day, the word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken persistently to you, but you have not listened. Did you catch our timeline? This prophecy of Jeremiah is given to King Josiah's son Jehoiakim, king of Judah, when in the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, might Daniel as a boy have heard this prophecy given prior to him being taken captive I don't know, but it seems very possible to me and the specific words that he's referencing in Daniel 9 they come from a bit later in that same chapter jeremiah twenty five verses eleven and twelve. They say, this whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. This has happened, right? Babylon has decimated Judah, including Jerusalem and the temple, and Babylon has now fallen too. We saw that in the first verse of our text today. We're We're not talking about the king of Babylon anymore in the same way. But what exactly are we to make of that 70 years? We see it referenced again in Jeremiah 29 and in Zechariah one twelve and 7.5. And it's really interesting to me the way it's referenced in 2 Chronicles 36, one of those books we don't go to very often. Um, After describing the destruction of Jerusalem, beginning in verse 20 of 2 Chronicles 36, it says, He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. Okay, did you catch it? All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. Back in Leviticus 25, God told Moses to tell the people that they were to work the land for six years. Then in 25.4, it says, but in the seventh year, there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. And it goes on and on with many Sabbath expectations. But God built in a Sabbath cycle not only on a weekly basis for his people, but on a cycle of seven years, six years of work, one year of rest for the land. Did the people do it? No. And it appears that Second Chronicles 36 is connecting Jeremiah's 70 years of the land being a ruined wasteland to the land making up all those missed Sabbaths. Under the monarchy, the years ago, people had kings. Um, by some people's math, there were approximately 490 years of sabbath lessness. So 70 years of desolation would be all of those missed Sabbaths, one after another. That could be the significance for the 70 years. Uh, Listen to Leviticus 26. This is verses 31 through 35 and then 43. We're just hitting all the really popular and frequented books today. Um, And I will lay your cities waste and will make your sanctuaries desolate. And I will not smell your pleasing aromas. And I myself will devastate the land so that your enemies who settle in it shall be appalled at it. And I will scatter you among the nations, and I will unsheathe the sword after you. And your land shall be a desolation, and your cities shall be a waste. Then the land shall enjoy its Sabbaths as long as it lies desolate. While you are in your enemies' lands, then the Sabbath shall rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. As long as it lies desolate, it shall have rest, the rest that it did not have on your Sabbaths when you were dwelling in it. Verse 43, But the land shall be abandoned by them. And enjoy its Sabbaths while it lies desolate without them, and they shall make amends for their iniquity because they spurned my rules and their soul abhorred my statutes. Was Daniel remembering all of this? It seems really possible to me. This could be the connection in Daniel's prayer to the 70 years. It's also very possible that the 70 years is not intended to be literal, but to signify the passing of. An entire generation. Um, After 70 years, very few adults would be left. Uh, Whole generations of adults would have died who would have been the ones that caused this punishment, if that makes sense. So the 70 years could be symbolic, sort of like the way the Israelites wandered for 40 years so those generations could die off before they entered the land. Um, Either way, if it's the literal 70 years, symbolic 70 years, Daniel is very, very aware of his people's covenantal failures. We know this because it's the bulk of his prayer. Uh, let's look at, look at starting Daniel 9, verse 3. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. Daniel has been in exile for roughly 60 years at this point. He was taken captive as a youth. Even in his childhood, that was under the last evil kings in Judah. He has not experienced his people keeping the covenant. He has not experienced the favor of God on the community of his people. He has lived through this really dark period of his people's history, even though we see Daniel portrayed as an upright man. But given that, look at how he starts this prayer in verse 4. Oh Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. He is not saying this because his personal experience or his people's experience in his lifetime has been warm and fuzzy blessing from God. Not at all. Yet he immediately recognizes God's greatness and awesomeness. He acknowledges God's faithfulness in upholding his side of the covenant And it's easy to do that maybe when life is good, but in this case, God's faithfulness has actually been to be faithful over the decades of Daniel's life in carrying out consequences for the people's unfaithfulness over the centuries. We see that in verse five with his recognition of the people's sin, wickedness, rebellion, and turning from God's commandments and rules. And notice, Daniel includes himself in this. We have sinned. Daniel is not giving himself a pass and pointing out, at how others before him or even others in his generation, while he's been in exile, have sinned and been unfaithful. With that plural pronoun, we, he is including himself in this failure. Look at verse 6. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. Again, not only does he include himself in this prayer, but he removes the option for anyone to give themselves a pass right? The words conveyed by, was conveyed by prophets. They clearly were speaking in the name of the Lord, so people knew these words were from God to them. And who were the words spoken to? Our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. Several translations translate princes as leaders, but either way, the prophets' words were given to not only the political and religious leadership, but also the familial leadership, and to all the people. It doesn't sound like there's any way to say there was a portion Of the population that didn't know. And while we know there was always a faithful remnant, it's obvious that the people at large, at all of those levels, did not listen. And to some degree, this is difficult for us. It's a difficult mindset for us because we live in a very, very different cultural setting. We are such an individualistic society that I think it's almost impossible for us to consider God viewing the Israelites as a people rather than as individuals. And it's harder for us to consider, or at least it's harder for me to consider uh, that, that Daniel would include himself in this. It feels wrong for the collective unfaithfulness or faithfulness to affect someone who is doing something different, right? The people are unfaithful, Daniel's been faithful, that feels wrong to me. But it made it made sense to Daniel. He includes himself in the sin of Israel because he is in Israel. He is part of the people. It made cultural sense to him. It made covenantal sense to him. God made a covenant with the people, not with each individual separately, though each individual had a role to play in being faithful. Uh, The people were unfaithful. The people sinned. Daniel's part of the people. Therefore, he is part of the sin, part of the unfaithfulness. This can rub us wrong because we don't want to be judged or held responsible for the choices of others but I think it would have been unfathomable for Daniel to consider himself outside of the larger context of his people. I don't think he could see himself as separate from them, even though he has spent decades in exile apart from them. Uh, Look where he goes next in this prayer, picking up in verse 7. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame, as at this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame, to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. By walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. There's some repetitiveness to Daniel's language throughout this, but his point is really clear. Other translations name that treachery specifically as unfaithfulness. The people are ashamed wherever they are at this point because they've been scattered from the land and their nation no longer exists as a geographic place to call their own. And their shame is because they have failed, they have sinned, and God has driven them from the land. And even still, Daniel sees God as merciful and forgiving in the face of their rebellion. Daniel sees the people in which he includes himself and God accurately. He sees them all for who they are. The people are sinful and rebellious against a good God. Notice that in verse 7, he calls out the treachery committed against you. In verse 8, we have sinned against you. Verse 9, we have rebelled against you. The people are not bystanders or missing a target they were trying to hit. They are actively choosing to break the covenant God created with them through treachery or unfaithfulness, through sin and through rebellion, all explicitly against God. Daniel keeps hammering this point home as he makes clear again that this is all of Israel who have sinned, and they did it knowing what would happen. Look at Daniel 9 verse 11. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. This reads like really straightforward cause and effect to me, but there's a vividness to Daniel's language of the curse and oath being poured out upon us. Yet even in that description, I don't hear bitterness on Daniel's part. There's no attempt to justify or to look for a loophole. There's no blaming previous generations for the current generation's failure or even lack of knowledge of the law of Moses, though we know there were times there when the people legitimately didn't know what the law said. This is a communal prayer of confession. There will be other similar prayers in Ezra 9 and in Nehemiah chapters 1 and 9. Daniel is not drawing on those, right? They have not happened yet, Um, but this is a style that goes back even earlier, and becomes more common going forward, but has its roots, I think, possibly even in a different communal prayer. Solomon's prayer in dedicating the temple. uh, Not a prayer of confession, prayer of dedication, but it's a communal prayer recounting God's faithfulness and the covenant he made. We're going to look at a lot of this in a couple different sections, but listen to Solomon's words in 1 Kings 8, starting in verse 23. O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you, in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. You have kept with your servant David my father what you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth and with your hand have fulfilled it this day. Verse 27, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less the house that I have built." Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes may be open night and day toward this house, the place of which you have said, My name shall be there, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place and listen to the plea of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. And listen in heaven and your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. Might Daniel be thinking of these words when he prays toward Jerusalem, toward the site where the temple once stood? Back in Daniel 9 verse 12, he, God, has confirmed his words which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. What's been done to Jerusalem? The walls were broken down and the city was destroyed, but that happened to a lot of cities. Uh, But the temple was also destroyed, the house of God. And I'm not sure I can fully appreciate the significance of this because we live in a time where there are many church buildings where we talk about ourselves as being the temples of the living God, and we are. Uh, We're right, but that was not the reality then. God's presence with his people, it was different then, right? His presence— Occurred in ways that honestly sound really marvelous to me. Thinking back to the cloud of, yeah, the cloud and the pillar in the Exodus, right? I think that would be amazing to be led by God in that way. And then they had the tabernacle, eventually the temple we just read about Solomon building. There was a place, this was the place where the name of God resided. It's different from our experience. And obviously the Israelites had not treated the temple well. Even earlier today, we just looked at Josiah ridding the temple of false gods. Talked about him removing uh, idols to Baal and Asherah. And Josiah was a good king. But false gods and much unfaithfulness happened in the temple under many, many kings. But nonetheless, the temple was incredibly significant. It was God's residence among his people. And its destruction is far more meaningful than a building being destroyed. It's far more detrimental than the loss of the things inside. It's symbolically the loss of the presence of God. This is devastating, I think in ways that are beyond us. But look at verse 13. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. All this calamity has come upon us. And notice that little word that comes next, yet. Yet. This awful thing has happened yet. This is where I think we really start to see Daniel's heart. And I wonder if he is not as grieved over the calamity that has befallen his people as he is at the people's failure to entreat the favor of God, to turn from their sin, or as he puts it, our sin, because he includes himself. And the failure, their failure to gain wisdom from God's truth. God has faithfully carried out the devastation that he promised, yet the people have failed again to be faithful. Daniel continues in verses 14 and 15. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself, as at this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly. Daniel can still point to God's righteousness and faithfulness. And here he is beginning to turn a corner in his prayer. His prayer is more than a history lesson and an affirmation of God's faithfulness and the people's unfaithfulness. Daniel has a hope and he's beginning a plea to God. Notice how verse 15 started and now. He's not content to stay in the place they are. He has his hopes pinned on the saving power of the God who has brought his people out of Egypt and who can bring them out of the exile. There's emotion behind this. Daniel is not praying a rote prayer. He is imploring God. We're seeing his heart. Listen to verses 15 through 19. And now, O Lord, our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself, as at this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy, and for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear, open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear, O Lord, forgive. O oh Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O oh my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. I hear Daniel's heart breaking in this plea. He knows God's people have failed, and yet he knows God is merciful, and he is begging God to save again. In verse 16, when he mentions the iniquities of our fathers, This term is not referring to all the generations of Israel, but to the generations just before, to the generations just leading up to the exile. Daniel appears to be tying the fall of Jerusalem in his own generation to the sins of the generation before it, as well as his own generation. And we looked at the text surrounding this earlier, but um, listen to Leviticus 26, 39 through 42. And those of you who are left shall rot away in your enemies' lands because of their iniquity, and also because of the iniquities of their fathers, they shall rot away like them. But if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers in their treachery that they committed against me, and also in walking contrary to me, so that I walked contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies, if then their uncircumcised heart is humbled and they make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob And I will remember my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham, and I will remember the land. Daniel's words bring this to mind, just as his contemporary Jeremiah does when talking about Jerusalem and the exile in Lamentations 5-7. Our fathers sinned and are no more, and we bear their iniquities. I hear Daniel's heart breaking over this iniquity. He's not casting blame, but he's acknowledging the depths of failure. What could we learn from him? What might our hearts need to break over, even if it happened in the generations before ours? Then in verse 18, we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. He understands the people will never merit saving, but God is merciful. Clearly, it is not possible for the people to never sin, but there seems to be an understanding that God recognizes their inability and is less looking for perfection, which is unachievable, and more for the posture of their hearts to be oriented to God, for them to recognize their disobedience, turn from it, and pay attention to God's truthfulness and faithfulness. God is both just and merciful. He is faithful to both the blessings and the cursing curses we looked at earlier. And he will be merciful in rescuing them from the curses when the people are truly repentant and seeking him. And I wonder if as he prayed, if Daniel might have been recalling more of Solomon's prayer, dedicating the temple. Listen to the end of Solomon's prayer of dedication. We're back in 1 Kings 8. This is verses 46 through 53, um, and one of the longest sentences I've ever seen in my life. If they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you are angry with them, and give them to an enemy so that they are carried away captive to the land of the enemy, far off or near, yet if they turn their heart in the land to which they have been carried captive, and repent and plead with you in the land of their captors, saying, We have sinned and have acted perversely and wickedly. If they repent with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies who carried them captive, and pray to you toward their land, which you gave to their fathers, the city that you have chosen, and the house that I have built for your name, then hear in heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and their plea, and maintain their cause, and forgive your people who have sinned against you, and all their transgressions that they have committed against you, and grant them compassion in the sight of those who carry them captive, that they may have compassion on them, for they are your people and your heritage, which you brought out of Egypt from the midst of, of the iron furnace. One sentence. Let your eyes be open to the plea of your servant and to the plea of your people Israel, giving ear to them wherever they call to you. For you separated them from among all the peoples of the earth to be your heritage, as you declared through Moses your servant when you brought your fathers out of Egypt, O Lord God. Where is Daniel? Captive in Babylon, now under the control of Darius Amid. The people have been taken captive and carried to the land of their captors. Where is he praying to? He's praying to God in heaven, and we know his custom is to pray facing Jerusalem. What's he doing? He is confessing the people's sin against God, asking for compassion, asking for God's ears to be open to the plea of his people, or at least this one person praying on behalf of the people, asking for God to act once again to rescue his people. He's doing exactly what Solomon described. I see parallels, right? I see patterns at play throughout this bigger narrative arc. Uh, One commentator says, Proper prayer has two aspects. It requires an abject acknowledgement that we are in the wrong and can ask for nothing on the basis of what we deserve. And it requires a confidence in God's mercy that makes it possible to emerge from the abyss of despair. Daniel is praying a proper prayer. There is acknowledgement of the people being in the wrong and not deserving anything. And he has total confidence in God's mercy that can bring the people out of this. This prayer is not in isolation. This prayer is firmly lodged in the greater narrative arc of the covenant between God and his people. And for us, standing in an entirely different place in history, we know how this continues unfolding, right? We know the beginning. We know God chose Abram. We know he made a covenant. He reaffirmed it. He formed a people. He rescued his people from Egypt. He gave them a land. He gave them his law and again reaffirmed the covenant as they entered the land, right? They struggled to obey and be faithful to him in the land, throughout the period of the judges. At their request, he gave them kings. They remained unified not for very long, just under three kings. And that third king, Solomon, he built this temple we've talked so much about in Jerusalem. Again, there was covenantal confirmation and an important prayer of dedication. And then after Solomon the kingdom divided, the north continued to be unfaithful under evil king after evil king until that kingdom ceased to exist. Then the southern king had a mix of good and evil kings, but even under the good kings like Josiah, the struggle to be faithful continued. Shortly after Josiah, that last good king, Babylon invaded and the exile began. Daniel was sent to Babylon early on, even as the last kings of Judah continued as vassals of the Babylonian empire. And then Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed. The people were scattered into captivity and exile. Um, for 70 years, as prophesied by Jeremiah shortly beforehand, the land is desolate. It can be seen as a making up of all of those Miss Sabbath years outlined way back in Leviticus, right? And ultimately then Babylon is invaded. And it's then that we find Daniel, no longer the young captive, now the old captive, still remembering God's faithfulness, still praying toward Jerusalem where the temple once stood. and in, And in his advanced age, as the end of Jeremiah's prophesied 70 years is approaching, Daniel prays this communal confession, acknowledging the people's failure to keep the covenant. He recognizes the people's unfaithfulness and God's faithfulness. And he leans into the heart of God, as a seeking mercy for the people, seeking God to remember his people who are called by his name and to once again rescue. And then we know what happens. We know what Daniel doesn't know. The rescue will come. The people will never have the land in the same way, but they will go home. The destroyed walls of Jerusalem will be rebuilt. The temple will rise again, though it will never be the same. But even better, there is one coming who will fulfill the law entirely. There will be an opportunity for every person to have right standing with God, to put on the perfection of Jesus. We today are not God's chosen people, but we are his body. We still have a collective identity, Though it looks different than it did in Daniel's day. What a wildly good thought. God's heart is indeed for his people. It was then, it is now. Let's pray. God, you are faithful, and we continue to struggle just like your people did all those years ago. Uh, but we thank you for both your justice and your mercy. We thank you that you remain faithful regardless. And we come to you once again, acknowledging all the many ways we fall short individually and collectively. And we plead for your mercy for us. We are so grateful for the gift of your son. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.